just a moment. As Mr. Al said, this is a new season in Crosspoint, uh, for Crosspoint, and uh, if you're visiting with us, I know this is all new to you, and so kind of listen to our family conversations here, but I haven't had the opportunity to address personally just the, what the, they have asked me to do in providing the preaching until further notice at any time that might, you know, take that away, but until, until further notice, that'll be my responsibility, and so... I want to invite you along a journey with me, because this is a journey for me as well. And so 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, if you are anxious about me preaching, then you're in good company. <laughs> so, as you get anxious, I want to ask that you pray this for me. This is what I, the standard that I want to hold myself to. And this is what I ask you to hold me to. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul has just given Timothy a list of the things that he is to do, how he is to lead the church. And he says in verse 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, and at this point this is until Christ comes, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I just want to highlight that part, so that all may see your progress. This comforts me greatly because when, Timothy, when Paul says, so all may see your progress, that means those people are probably are also seeing Timothy's weaknesses. In order for them to see progress, they're also seeing his weaknesses. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And now I want to read to you a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon began preaching, pastoring at the age of 16, and this is a quote from when he was 19 to the congregation he was pastoring. I entreat of you to remember me in prayer that I may realize the solemn responsibility of my trust. Remember my youth and inexperience and pray that these may not hinder my usefulness. I trust also that the remembrance of these will lead you to forgive mistakes I may make or unguarded words I may utter. Oh, that I may be no injury to you, but a lasting benefit. And so this is what I pray. I know that I will make mistakes, but I pray that I will be for your good. And I pray that you would pray that for me also. So, now, if you'll turn in Coloss- to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll begin preach, uh, this the text of Colossians 3, verse 12 through uh, 14. If you're visiting with us, we've been walking through the book of Colossians, and we've made it to chapter 3. And I want to begin with a question. How often do you think about your adoption? This is a question for believers. If you're not a believer in here, then listen in. This still has significance for you. But if you're a believer in the room, how often do you think about your adoption? Russell Moore, he has a book called uh, Adopted for Life. And he talks about when he went to uh, see his children, the children that he would adopt in Russia. He and his wife were not able to have children. And so they went to adopt children in Russia. And he talked about what it was like. When he got there, he was in a a Russian uh, orphanage, and he says this, 
We almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of the place. The boys were in their cribs in the dark, lying in their own excrement and vomit, covered in heat blisters and flies. These were their children as, as babies. They had not adopted them yet, but they get there and they walk in and these are the children that they would one day, that they would adopt soon. And they're screaming. And they're covered in their own excrement and vomit the first time he sees them. Now I want to read to you a passage in Ezekiel chapter 16. You'll see that in your notes under the first point, Who is my father? And I'll read to you verse 12 because we're going to begin there. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That first part is very significant, and that's why we're going to spend a lot of time there this morning. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. If you pay attention to the Old Testament, what you're going to see is that the way that the people of Israel were identified as God's chosen people, set apart by God, holy and beloved. Paul begins, before he tells them to put on some certain characteristics, he tells them what their identity is. And so in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, I want you to see if this has any resemblance to the story I read about Russell Moore and their adoption. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, this is verse 1, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. You grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. You see, Israel was an orphan. And it was only by God's choosing that they became anything. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 7 and verse 6. I'm going to read this to you. God says again about Israel, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than all the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. Again, the Lord reminding his people, It was nothing about you that was lovely. It was me. I chose you and I set you apart to be my people and to follow me. Now, if you look at your, pay attention to your outlines, we, like Israel, were spiritually fatherless. And I have your list there before God. Now, these are, this is just a list from Ephesians 2.1 and verses 12 through 13. This is how we are described. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, hopeless and without God. In case you didn't know it, without God, you're nothing. You can do nothing. Without God, you are spiritually fatherless. In fact, the closest thing you have to a father is Satan. 
Because it's his works that you walk in. But he's not a father. He's not a good father. In Christ, this is what happens to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 22. We are reconciled to God through the cross. We are at peace with God and man. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. We are a dwelling place for God. We are holy, set apart, and we are beloved. We are loved, treasured, cherished by God. This is in Christ. And so here's what you need to know before we get into this passage where Paul's going to say, put on compassion, put on kindness, is he's addressing it to people who are God's chosen. Chosen by God. So here, verse C in your outline, false notion of self-help. That you would simply just put on these good characteristics on your own is a fallacy. Complete fallacy. It's surface level. You do it for a little while, but your heart still rages with sin. Even though you may look like you're having compassion for people, it's not true compassion. Here's what you must know. The only one who has true compassion and true kindness is God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so if you're going to put on true compassion, true kindness, if you're going to reject the ways of the flesh, God must be your Father. He must be your Father. And so, there's a verse there, John 15, verse 16. Jesus says in that verse, I did not, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This is a situation when Jesus has told his disciples, he's going to go. He's going to be leaving. The men he's walked with for several years. And so, we know Thomas and guys like this are very nervous. They, they don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so, they're going through all these doubts. And so, it's in the midst of these doubts about who Jesus is and who they are that Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you. And I chose to send you. And so, there's this false concept, and even in Christian circles all the time, that we chose God. That we went and we said, you know what? I'm going to follow God. But the problem with that is that you begin to think that God is something like you. (laughs) And so, your sense of compassion is equal with God's compassion. And your sense of kindness is equal with God's kindness. And your sense of forgiveness is equal with God's forgiveness. And it's not true. The only way that you can have God's compassion, God's kindness, and God's forgiveness is if you understand that he chose you. He is secure. And so when you doubt, God's not doubting. When you struggle, he's he's not. He is stable. He is firm. And he has decided to set you apart so that you can walk in his compassion and his kindness and his forgiveness. So as we see these passages where Paul is going to say, put on these things we must understand that God has already chosen us to give us these things and so it's not by our our power that we do them it's by what he's already done and then in verse 17 of the same uh, passage verse uh, verses 12 through 17 in chapter 3 very important it's a summary statement but what Paul says is whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him And what that verse means when Paul says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the ancient world to do something in someone's name was to do it in their authority and in their power. And so before we get to these statements where Paul's telling you what to do, know for certain he's not called you to do it on your own. 
He's called you to do it in the power and the authority of Christ. Who, if you're a believer, has made you his own and set you apart for his service. So the first point is, who is your father? Who is your father? Uh, More goes on in the book I was talking about, Adopted for Life. When he when they had to leave Russia one time, once they saw their children, they had to leave them there. And their children are screaming. You can imagine only how hard it must have been to leave the children in their excrement who would one day, they would take home with them, but they had to leave them there for like two weeks before they could actually take them home. And he says that he, he hears them crying and he couldn't help but walk over to his kids and say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If you're familiar with Jesus's, those are Jesus' words to his disciples. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. They go back to the United States, and then eventually they're able to travel back to Russia, get their children. When they walk out of the orphanage with their children for the first time, remember, they were sitting in the dark. The children were in the dark. So when the light shines on, they scream, they shriek, wanting to be back in the orphanage, back in the dark. Eventually, they get them on the bus, and the kids are still screaming. These kids who don't know how good they're about to have it. The, the family had clothed them in the clothes that their parents had bought for the children, and so no longer were they sitting in their own vomit and things, but they were clean. And eventually, they take them home, and he says the only way that they knew that the kids were beginning to get used to their situation, new situation was when the kids stopped hiding food in their... Um, their high chairs. They would hide food because of the situation they were in before, and that was the only way they knew they were used to it. And so he, he looks back, and he, he talks about a situation where he's preaching, and the kids come up on stage, and they're dressed in their clothes. They're older now, and they've adjusted to their status as fully adopted children fully adopted children. They wear the clothes and they wear them gladly. They talk like their father and they do it gladly. And they're fully adopted in. And you believers, you're fully adopted in. God is your father. You're all brothers, fully brothers and sisters together. And so you must know that as we get into these verses. Question, who is your father? Is it Satan or is it God? Because if it's not God, you will not be able to do this. Verses 12 through 14 is where we'll be today. So read those for you. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that we would be challenged, Father, and that by your grace, by your spirit, you would enable us to put on the character that reflects you. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be with us this morning, to give us this strength. May we not trust in ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do want to remind you as we get into this, some reminders from Colossians 3, 1 through 11 that come into play here. And you'll see that at the bottom of your uh, 
probably first page. The new birth is an individual experience that affects the entire family. And Landon's outline said we are united to Christ. And so that first verse says, if then you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. We've been united to Christ, then we've been united in Christ. And so what you're going to see is these characteristics Paul's told you to take off are things like sexual immorality, things like anger, malice, slander. These are all characteristics that divide us as the body. And the characteristic that, that Paul tells us to put on are those things that unite us as a body. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. These are the things that keep us together. And so you must know that this isn't done in isolation. If you're not a part of the community of faith, then you're being disobedient already. If you're not dwelling with us and living life with us, then how can these traits apply to you? This is where these traits are groomed. This is where it's done. Community with the uh, people of faith. And so we'll begin our second point. How do I begin to look like my father? Again, we do these things in Christ, and so that's why the outline is reflect on the attitudes of Christ. Because you can't simply just put it on yourself. Again, this is self-made religion. It'll be surface level, but it's in reflecting on Christ that we begin to, these things develop in our hearts, and then they go out from us. They flow. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 is where we'll look at compassion. And this scripture is in your outline. When Jesus saw the crowds, these are crowds who have been oppressed by uh, tax holders who are asking for too much money so they're poor, the religious authorities who are putting commands on them that they can't handle, and so they're oppressed. And he says he saw the crowds, Jesus, and had compassion on them because they were bewildered and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so the way that we develop compassion in our own, own hearts is by looking to Jesus and the compassion that he had. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. If we think about Jesus' kindness, his humility, his meekness, it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, you should then have the same attitude towards one another that Christ had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's what you must see in Christianity. That a man, who, one who was a king, became a slave. One who was a king and dwelt beside God became a servant to sinners. It's like one of us becoming a pig. Would you willingly sacrifice that? And so... Your questions of will I serve others, will I be humble for, uh, before others, when you take that to Christ, it's gone. It's crushed. You serve all. You're a slave to all because you're a slave of Christ. And so uh, the arrogance that goes on the Christian body, done away with. Can't happen. The unwillingness to love one another fully, done. Can't happen. Reflect on Christ and his humility. The one who was a king became a slave. All your questions of what I'll do for the body of Christ, they're gone. They're gone. Patience with Peter. The one who told Jesus, I will never deny you. 
I will never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus patiently says, Peter, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter says, far be it from me, Lord. I'll never deny you. Okay, okay, Peter. And then after Peter's denial of Jesus in his deepest moments of agony, in his resurrection, Jesus invites Peter to share food with him. And Jesus walks him through three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He was patient with his disciples. He loved them all the way through all their junk. And here's the thing with us. We're nothing like Jesus. (laughs) Nothing like Jesus. And so your unwillingness to love some people through some of their junk and their baggage, it can't happen. That's not Jesus. It cannot happen. Bearing with... Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, and this is one of my favorites. See, Paul was a realist, and so he does say bearing with one another. And what that actually translates into is putting up with one another. There are some people who are just going to be difficult. And so each of you who has a spouse probably need to turn to the other right now and say, thanks for putting up with me. Go ahead, do it, give you time. Thanks for putting up with me. Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, where it says, it talks of bearing with one another in Colossians. And Jesus says, this is his disciples who have tried to cast out a demon, but their faith was too weak. They weren't able to do it. And they come to Jesus and say, why why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. The disciples who just weren't getting it. Jesus says, how long? How long? But did he endure with those disciples? Did he go get another group? No. He stuck with his disciples. He was faithful to his disciples, to teaching them, to commanding them, to leading them. And so, when you think about giving up on somebody, if you reflect on Christ, you can't do that anymore. If you reflect on the practice of Christ and what he did, you can't give up on people. You forbear. You patiently wait. You trust in Christ. You pray. But you can't just throw them to the side. You can't just throw them to the side. So it's in Christ that we find the strength to endure with others' weaknesses, with others' flaws. It's just reality. It's life in a sinful, broken world. But as the Christian community, we are called to reflect Christ in endurance and forbearance. So, next point B, reflect on Christ's forgiveness. Because in verse uh, 13, it says, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We reflect on Christ's forgiveness. This is how we forgive Christ took the initiative. God sent him. He came for us. It says when Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem to uh, die on behalf of us, it says he set his face on Jerusalem. He was determined to go there, to die for our sins. How often do you set your face toward forgiveness? Forgiveness is your aim. It's what you seek fully. He forgave completely. There was nothing he still held against us. There is nothing he still holds against us. 
you also must forgive completely. And what Paul is probably calling into mind here is the parable in Matthew chapter 18. When a a master says to his servant, you need to pay up. And the servant begs, I can't pay up. I can't pay up. And he's going to have to send him to prison if he doesn't pay up. And he begs and begs. and And the master says, okay, I set you free. And then what does that servant go do? He goes to one who has a measly sum that he owes him compared to what he owed the other master. And he says, you better give me what you owe me. And he's going to throw him in jail. And he does. And the point of the parable is, if you can't forgive, you haven't experienced forgiveness. And if you can't forgive, Jesus will not forgive you. You see, if you hold other sins against them, you have not experienced the full, loving forgiveness of Christ. You have not experienced it. And you have not been forgiven. And Christ, one day when you arrive there, will not forgive you. In forgiveness, in forgiveness in this Christian community, you can't dwell in self-pity. You can't continue to talk about about what others have done to you. That's not forgiveness. The forgiveness of Christ is you are free from all that you've done. I no longer hold it against you. Not only that, but I don't remember it in my mind. Is that the forgiveness we exercise in our body? Is this the way that we lavish God's love on one another? And this is why in verse 11, Paul has already said, Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We should not hold accounts here. That doesn't belong here. And so if you're holding grievances against someone, if you're dwelling in self-pity, then you need to repent or you need to go to those that you're holding this against. But you must get rid of this. This will hinder our body. This will hinder our community. So you need to take care of that. Next, and one of the last points, reflect on Christ's love. It says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The picture is that you've put on all these other garments, and then this last garment is going to hold everything else together. So it's like a clip that's going to hold all these other attitudes and things in check. And so a quote from N.T. Wright, the other virtues pursued without love become distorted and unbalanced. And so love, loving one another, we seek what's good for everyone. And so that means accountability. That means loving even when it hurts. So you see, sometimes love isn't just soft and tender. There is such a thing as godly, tough love. And so this is why in the community of faith, we must hold one another accountable. We must seek one another's good by pointing out sin when it's there, not just letting it go. That's not love. And so all these other characteristics are held in check by love that always seeks the good of the other. Then the the last main point. These traits are built in community, and we touched on this just a minute ago. But in Acts chapter 2, I want you to look there with me. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, notice how many of the characteristics mentioned in this passage reflect Colossians chapter 3, what we've just read. 
This is the new body of believers, people who have just become converted. And it says in verse 42, And they, being the body, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And pay attention here. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributions, uh, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You'll see in, later in Colossians 3 that one of the points that Paul wants to make is gratitude flows from us. Thankfulness flows from us. And you see this body being together and generosity is flowing from them towards one another. They praised God and they had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's one point I want to make here. Humility, Christ-like forgiveness, patience. These things are built in godly community. Godly community. Not on the fringes. So if you just hang out on the outside of our body, like if you've, you're trying to think about, well, do I just want to be an attender or a member? I'm not sure what are the benefits of being a member. I'm not sure if it's worth it. Or if you're just like, I'm going to just make it to Sunday services, and that's, I, that's my check. I've been to service. That's what I do. I go to church service. But these other things, I, I really don't have time. They're not as important. These characteristics will not be built like that. What you're creating is a self-made religion, which Paul already condemned in Colossians 2. Growing up, I grew up in North Louisiana. It's the Bible Belt. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. It was great. I was taught the faith. But there was always this attitude, and I I miss church. Partly might be my baggage. Sometimes we miss church growing up. And there was this question we would ask of kind of how many churches, how many services is okay to miss every month or whatever, you know? And people, they would sometimes kind of quiz you like, so why did you miss? And you're, you're waiting to see what's their reaction. Was your excuse good enough, you know? And, and attending services I knew was good, but the problem was that there was this concept of legalism that went with it. That your faith was all about, did you attend church on Sunday? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to hear me saying that attending services is not good or not necessary. But here's the point. The question is wrong. The motive is wrong. The question is not, how many Sundays is it okay to miss? The question is, do I want to miss gospel preaching today? The question is, do I want to miss fellowship with the community of believers today? The question is, do I want to not be challenged by fellow believers? If you don't want accountability and you don't want church discipline, this is what you'll do. This is what you'll do. So I don't want you to think that I'm trying to be like legalistic here and say you have to make it every Sunday. But the reason we gather is so that we can hold one another accountable, so that we can develop these godly characteristics, Christ-like characteristics of humility, kindness, Love towards one another. Forgiveness towards one another. Those things will not be developed by you coming to church two Sundays a month. By you not wanting to be in really close relationships with other believers. These things are developed through a church covenant. 
where people are committed to one another, where you realize that this body, we're all accountable to one another. And this is why I ask you to pray First Timothy for me. And this is why I want you to tell me if I get off track, if I'm not doing my best. And this is why if you're in sin, we're going to take heed to come to you out of love. Because that's what we're called to do. And so I really want to challenge you to think on these things. That's the community of faith. This is a family conversation. If you're a uh, non-believer, we're glad that you're here. Sorry, we welcome you. But this is the gospel, that we walk with Christ and we love him, and we love him together and we hold one another up. And if you want that, then we welcome you and we want you to come and commit your life to Christ because we will be that for you. But if you're a believer and you're not walking in those things, and that's not the New Testament church. That's not the New Testament believer. And we want you to be very aware of that. That you need to take heed to your life. And you need to wonder, am I a follower of Jesus? This is why we come together. And so, as we close, I want to give you a chance to respond. I want to give you opportunity to go. If you're, if you're holding a grudge against someone in our midst, if there's a struggle with really forgiving and recognizing what Christ has done and to the, ex the extent to which that affects you, then come pray. Go to the person that you need to go to. But the challenge for this week is, and the challenge for your life is, if you want to develop compassion, if you want these things to clothe you, then you need to reflect on Christ. These things are not just outer characteristics, but they're characteristics that flow from our heart. And so you must, it takes work, reflect on Christ. Reflect on what he's done. Know his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have died for us, that you've saved us from ourselves. Thank you that through meditating through you on you, Father, that you change our hearts, that you transform us into your likeness. Thank you, Father, that you're with us every step of the way. That it's not something of just we choose you and then and we're saved and then we just go on through life. But it's we continue to meditate on what you've done for us and continue to do for us in Christ. And in that, you transform us and you use us for your glory. Thank you for the community of faith that you've called us to walk through life together. To share our struggles, our doubts, our concerns, the things that we need to pray for. Lord, I thank you you've called us to walk in this fellowship. Lord, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our body, continue to transform us and to use us to proclaim your greatness to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.